This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Friday, August 28, 2020. Pierre Polyev, the finance critic for the Conservative Party of Canada, joined us to talk about the pages and pages of redacted WE documents and the ongoing Liberal scandal. A prominent pediatrician is raising questions about the reliability of COVID-19 tests on children and the impact of that on back to school. And Jeff Rubin talks about his new book, The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. All of this is coming up right now. There's a story that just won't go away, nor should it. Uh, let's just give this the disinfectant of full sunlight. And to that end, Pierre Polyev, who is a finance critic with the Conservative Party of Canada, has joined the Oakley Show this afternoon to explain how a House of Commons law clerk is now saying public servants went too far in redacting the weed documents that had been solicited by the committee's looking into the shenanigans behind this whole charitable affair that was going to cost taxpayers 912 mil. Pierre Polyev, good to have you back in the program. Good afternoon. Good to be with you. So uh, the law clerk says public servants went too far in redacting uh, these things. <laughs> Does this buttress your case that there might be uh, something shenanigans afoot here? Yes. In fact, they shouldn't have redacted anything at all. Uh, the redactions were supposed to be conducted by the law clerk. The, the law clerk who works for Parliament and not for government was supposed to get a big pile of 5,000 pages, and he was supposed to go through and ascertain what should be blacked out to protect cabinet confidences and personal information. Instead, he got the documents pre-redacted. They were already filled with a black ink. There was 1,074 redactions, and every redaction is is basically when you look at a page and you see something blacked out. In many cases, it's the entire page is nothing but black ink. The uh, law clerk says he has no way of certifying that these blackouts are legitimate or legal, and therefore we're calling on the government to hand him the unredacted documents and let him see and decide for himself what Parliament and Canadians should see. Well, yeah, that's supposed to be his job. He's duty-bound to do that. But who do you think did the redactions? Well, it seems like the top-level bureaucrats under direction from the uh, Trudeau ministers. Um, so Justin Trudeau, of course, is embroiled in the scandal because his family received over a half million dollars from the group, and then he tried, turned around and tried to give the group a half a billion dollars. Uh, now he's trying to pretend that he had nothing to do with it, even though he was the chair of the cabinet committee that approved the money, and even though he made the final decision. Um, it's no wonder that he would want to try and keep Canadians from seeing the truth, as I think it's probably going to be extremely damaging for him in the process. Um, but, you know, like I, I, for example, his own department, the Privy Council office, redacted 169 different times in this document. So there's something they're hiding under all that black ink. We can't wait to find out what it is. I was going to say, do you want to speculate? What do you think it might be? I think it'll probably show that the prime minister was more involved in trying to grant this money than he has so far admitted. I think it will show that the WE organization was incapable of delivering the program that they were uh, granted money to deliver. And it, it will also show that it was politicians and their staff, not our independent public service, that chose we to receive all this money. 
And yet uh, these departments and bureaucrats uh, who were responsible for implementing this program actually did the redactions. Isn't that like the fox guarding the hen house effectively? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, it's uh, like asking someone to investigate himself. Uh, of course, uh, you're going to have uh, a bias. So that's why we say give it to the law clerk. He's not biased. He has no skin in the game. His job is just to act as the top lawyer for Canada's parliament. Let him decide what should be blacked out. Didn't the Prime Minister, if I've got the story right, he told CBC News last week that it was actually the parliamentary law clerk who did the redactions. Is he lying? Well, I don't know. I didn't hear that comment, but anybody who says that it was the law clerk is lying. It it was not the law clerk. It was the bureaucrats themselves. They handed it over. It is true that the law clerk had a chance to look at the redacted documents, but not at what what was behind the redactions themselves. So he he has so he had a chance to flip through the pages, but of course when he got those pages they were filled with black ink. <laughs> All right, yeah, we'd like to see uh, the country back in the black, but this is a different sort of uh, set of circumstances. Again, with Pierre Polyev, uh, he is the finance critic for the Conservative Party of Canada. Just to correct, I, I understand now it was somebody in the PMO uh, that told CBC News that in fact. Uh, that it was the law clerk who had uh, done the redacting, so obviously that was uh, somewhat misleading. So are there any penalties for breaching this protocol and uh, going in contravention of your committee and whomever else wanted to see the raw product or at least uh, something redacted by the law clerk? Any penalties for that? Yes, uh, government uh, members can be found in uh, contempt of parliament. Uh, Contempt of parliament is a great shame. Uh, and uh, there, it is possible that if uh, the government does not ha- hand over the documentation, that those responsible for covering it up could, could be, in fact, be found in contempt. But we're hoping that we can apply pressure in September when Parliament resumes to seek the full and uh, unadulterated release of all these documents so that Canadians know the truth. So you're not letting it go. I mean, this is something that uh, I guess prorogation was attempting to kind of have fade with the uh, sands of time or into the mist, but you're not letting it go. No, in fact, uh, it's, uh, the timing and the sequence of events is very interesting because uh, uh, on the same day that Trudeau's government handed those documents uh, to the Finance Committee, they, they shut down Parliament. Um, and they did that because they knew we were going to get all this black ink and that we would convene a meeting and pass a motion to have all the redactions uh, um, exposed, to remove all the black ink so Canadians could see the truth. But Trudeau was very clever. He shut down Parliament, closed off these committees, ended the investigations temporarily to prevent that from happening. So, But the good news is that Parliament is eventually going to have to come back uh, in late September, because the government is running out of spending authorization. They will not have money to keep the lights on if they don't go back to Parliament for more. So when that happens, the committees will reconvene, and we will be passing a motion uh, demanding the government release uh, all of the documents. We can only hope that Canadians are still engaged and care about this stuff. Sometimes I uh, you know, get dispirited or disheartened because I think you know, too often uh, they think it's, you know, policy wonkish stuff in the Ottawa bubble and so on and so forth. Uh, but tell us why it's important to the rank-and-file Canadian to care. So the Prime Minister has pushed out $200 billion of spending, new additional spending above and beyond what would normally be done um, since the COVID lockdown. And we want to know whether that money has been going to, to 
Canadians in need, or whether it's been going to liberal insiders who are well-connected and have been able to use those connections to get to to cash in. Uh, so in this case, it's uh, it was a half-billion-dollar contribution agreement to the WE organization, which paid the Prime Minister's family half a million dollars, had in fact, a Blacklock's reporter indicated this week that the Prime Minister's brother was had got uh, something like sixty thousand dollars for six months' work, which is almost a full-time salary uh, for someone like him. Um, and and somehow the Prime Minister interferes with uh, to, to to grant this organization a half a million, half a billion dollars. So I guess you, the question is for your listeners: Do you want your money to go to the people who pay off the prime minister's family, or do you want your money to go to programs and services that help Canadians? A fair question. And then some, uh, Mr. Polly, I always appreciate your coming on and uh, keep their feet to the fire. It's important. As I said, you know, for the rank and file Canadian, uh, we should care. Thanks so much for sharing some time. Great to be with you. I really enjoy your show. Take care. Thank you for that. Pierre Polyev, again, he's a conservative finance critic on the matter of <laughs> these we documents. He was holding one up uh, rather graphic. It's basically, it looks like when uh, something's screwed up with your printer, the whole page is black. It's a document and it's all blacked out. One of the big stories that continues to confront parents, especially as we're on the clock effectively, you know, almost the 11th hour, so to speak, of kids going back to school is whether or not all the safety protocols are in place and children's safety is paramount. Now there's a doctor who's raising a concern that perhaps the uh, COVID-19 tests on children uh, may not be the be-all and end-all and tell us everything we need to know. That doctor is Dina Kulik, pediatrician and director of Kid Crew Pediatric Clinic here in town. Dr. Kulik, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me. So you have some apprehensions about the tests for kids for COVID-19. How so and why is that? I do. I, I can say that there's no gold standard for the testing. What we do now is we do what's called an NP swab or swab inside the nose, and it's the same test for both kids and for adults, and we have no gold standard to compare it to. What I mean by that is because there isn't a test that we know is really definitive, we can't say with any certainty how reliable or accurate the current testing measures are. And I can say from my own professional experience over these many months taking care of hundreds of kids that had viral symptoms some of whom had parents or other family members that tested positive for COVID. Many of these kids, most of these kids, actually tested negative for COVID. And this would be the same in hospital-based settings and other testing sites. Many kids have been sick, and yet almost none have swabbed positive in the setting of having confirmed cases that they were exposed to. So you're saying the testing is inconsistent or just way off. Uh, it, it's not reliable. What is the gold standard, by the way? What would be uh, 100% foolproof? Is that even possible? It doesn't exist yet, so there's nothing to compare it to. Even the antibody testing, we also know is inaccurate. There's a, there's a lot of pieces to this. It could be that the test itself is just not that accurate or reliable. It could be that the virus doesn't live so close to the outside of the nose, and therefore you would have to go much deeper than we expect to. We do know for sure that the amount of virus you have in your nose varies based on where you're at in the illness process, whether you're asymptomatic, you're early in terms of your symptoms, you're very sick. Even people that are admitted to the intensive care unit, even the kids that have had things like Kawasaki disease 
for multi-system inflammation, where we're pretty certain these kids have COVID, a lot of these kids are swabbing negative, and some of them even have negative antibodies. So I find it very hard to believe that the test could be relied upon. And my concern is that if we're heading back to school and daycares, and we're using the test as a measure to tell us whether it's safe for a child to return to a school or a daycare setting if they have a negative test, I am very concerned that this is going to lead more kids to go back when they're still shedding the virus, still potentially at risk of passing on COVID to others because they had a negative test that is unreliable and inaccurate. So what's the conclusion? That testing in and of itself being ineffective is unnecessary or do we still do testing? I mean, Dr. Allison McGeer, who you may know uh, as an infectious disease specialist, is saying, you know, it's probably on the order of 90 to 95 percent. Is that not good enough? I don't think it is 90 to 95% for kids. I, I think that's pretty likely impossible, to be honest. If you look at hospital settings that only see children across the country, they've swabbed tens of thousands of children, and almost no one is positive. I think that's impossible. And again, many of these kids that we're swabbing have history of direct contact with family members that do swab positive, and they have the same symptoms. I have kids that were in quarantine when we were in quarantine, had no other exposures, other kids that were sick at all, and yet they got sick. And the only explanation I have is that they got that they got COVID. Because there isn't any way to tell at the moment how reliable or accurate the test is, I'm not saying not to do it. I think it's a reasonable thing to do because it has somewhat more reliability and accuracy in adults, it seems clear. However, if we're relying upon this test to tell us whether a child is safe to return to school, I think that is a mistake. I think we'd be better off being conservative. And if a child is unwell in any way, whether they swab or don't swab, swab positive or not, I think those children should remain home from school when possible for the next 14 days while we're waiting out that, that incubation period and that period where you're still contagious. That, I think, is the most conservative. Well, isn't that uh, what's being recommended as we speak, I thought, you know, if anybody shows any symptoms of any kind of disease, they're taken out of the classroom setting and are sent home. Uh, you're saying 14 days of quarantine. I think at that point it suggested they get tested along with the family. And if negative, they go back. But uh, is that, that the problem? You'd like to see them taken out of the school setting and quarantining for 14 days, regardless if they got the sniffles, maybe a cold, the onset of, well, let's say the flu season in October, for example. You just want them taken out and quarantined for 14 days. Is that right? I do think that'd be the safest bet at the moment. Now, the thought around this going back to fall season, illness season, that is absolutely true. We're heading back to school when we normally see more viruses. But... If we are doing our best job at preventing COVID, which is another respiratory virus that also spreads by droplets, like influenza, if we're doing our best to prevent against COVID, we should not be seeing a rise in influenza and other viruses because we're washing our hands, we're wearing masks when we can, we're minimizing contact with others. We should have less viruses in the fall and winter than we normally do because of that protection. So I don't expect to see a surge in these illnesses unless we're not doing what we should be doing prevent against COVID as well. I believe that expectation can be fulfilled if we stay on these regimens because they've uh, had that experience in the Southern Hemisphere where they're coming out of their winter, haven't we? Absolutely. So Australia in particular has had a bit of a mess with COVID recently, but they did see less flu in their flu season. If we're safe about it and we're patient, I think that's the biggest piece here. We're very eager to get back to normalcy, but it's not normalcy right now. And the the best we've done is because we've been really patient 
and diligent, right? Canada, by and large, has done incredibly well throughout COVID by putting in place all these measures like distancing and masking and minimizing contact with others. If we continue to do the same thing, I don't anticipate we're going to have a huge rise. It's when we start having classes of 30 kids and unmasking and being indoors versus outdoors, that's when the risk becomes more, it's higher. Dr. Kulig, isn't the real issue that uh, the kids may spread the contagion to parents or the elderly? There was a study out of the UK I was reading about today. Don't know if you've seen it, but it says the chances of anything serious befalling a child are are pretty much negligible to none. And uh, so they say, yeah, the kids are going to have sniffles and the flu. Brace yourselves for that. Uh, But otherwise, the contagion is not going to do anything to them except for you know maybe the anomaly uh here or there but otherwise is it really about the spread potentially to the parents in the home or the elderly that is a big piece for sure by and large children have done amazingly well throughout covid most kids are probably asymptomatic or very minimally symptomatic we have had some chronic inflammatory response in some kids as i mentioned kawasaki disease and multi-system inflammation that's the short term however we don't have long-term data yet So one thing that I'm curious about as we get into six months, 10 months, 12 months of this, what is a long-term impact? We do know in some populations we've seen longer-term inflammatory problems like renal problems and heart inflammation and lung inflammation and chronic migraines. There are some longer-term side effects we don't even know because we're only, you know, a few months into this. There's too many unknowns. And so I still think we should be minimizing contact to our children and ourselves And 100%, if a child gets sick and comes home, again, even asymptomatic, which most people are for sure asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, which is great for that individual, but they can pass it on to their parents or their grandparents or other loved ones that are higher risk. And I want people to be able to see their grandparents. Well, Dr. Kulik, let me ask you, I mean, it may be theoretical or practical, I don't know, but uh, would you send your kids back to school in another week and a half? At the moment, I'm thinking I'm going to move to a virtual platform to start. I'm not against sending them later, but the more I think about it, the more hesitance I have. It also depends on where you live. There's some areas that have lots of COVID and some that have very little. And your classroom setting might have 10 kids or might have 30. So I think there's a lot of, you know, variability across the country and even, you know, region to region. So, you know, it's, it's a hard decision. I have four children I, and I'm a working person who has a business. I totally understand People want to get their kids back to school, and for many other reasons, too. Physically, emotionally, mentally, some children are feeling very isolated. Some children are living in homes that are unsafe. Some children aren't eating enough because they're not in school. So there's many, many reasons to you know, get kids back to school. But I do think that the smartest way, the way that we're going to minimize the risk of another outbreak, is to be as diligent and as cautious as we have been. And I do think that relying on testing to tell us whether we should go back, if we're safe to go back, and for sure no longer contagious, that I think is a piece that we have to think about really carefully. Finally, just uh, out of curiosity, I mean, when the flu season does come around and there are colds and things like that, the COVID-19 test uh, would not distinguish or uh, perhaps recognize the strain of flu that might be prevalent in the fall, will it or won't it? Well, the COVID test will look at just COVID. There are influenza swabs and other viral swabs that we use to detect other illnesses like influenza, like a very common illness in kids called RSV, that testing is actually pretty accurate. So I would feel more comfortable relying on that. You know, if you do a swab for COVID and you do a swab for influenza, 
the child has influenza, that doesn't mean they don't also have COVID, but at least you know they do also have influenza. But again, if we're really diligent about preventing the spread of COVID, that will also be preventing the spread of influenza and other viruses. Fair enough. Uh, Well, let's just take that under advisement. Uh, Appreciate all these different inputs as we're trying to sort through uh, the minefield of whether or not the kids should or shouldn't go back to school. Every parent has to make their own uh, decision based on uh, the best relevant information. And thank you for supplying some of that this afternoon, Doctor. You are very welcome. Stay healthy and safe. And you, Dr. Dina Kulik, Pediatrician Director of Kid Crew Pediatric Clinic. Everything has been disrupted, and uh, the pandemic has changed how our economy structured and how it functions. So says Jeff Rubin, a world-leading expert on trade and energy and former chief economist and chief strategist at CIBC World Markets, whose first book, Why Your World is About to Get a Whole Lot Smaller, was an international bestseller. He's followed that up his new book, The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. Jeff Rubin has joined the Oakley Show at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Mr. Rubin, good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Good to talk to you. Can I ask you in a nutshell off the top? I mean, just in general terms, because uh, it's there in your title, but I'll use Donald Trump's terminology. How'd the middle class get schlonged? Well, I tell you, the, the key to understanding why the middle class is disappearing, not just in Canada, but in the U.S., the U.K., Australia, all the OECD countries, is basically because of what the kind of jobs the economy today produces, and maybe more importantly, what kind of jobs the economy no longer produces. In the heyday of the middle class in North America, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the middle class worker produced the very things they consumed, cars, televisions, dishwashers, what have you. But today, those things are produced in other countries where labor is a fraction of what it costs in countries like Canada. There hasn't been a net job created in the goods-producing side of the economy in Canada for almost two decades. There have been a lot of jobs created, but virtually all of the jobs have been in the much lower-paying service industries, and more recently in the so-called gig economy, where many workers are considered self-employed contractors and hence can be paid below minimum wage. That's why real wages, that is inflation-adjusted wages, haven't grown in Canada or the United States since 1975. I mean, that's a long time to go without a wage increase. Well, so who or what is responsible for all of this? Well, I'll tell you what's responsible for that. It's, it's trade policy. I mean, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, you could have moved your factory to Mexico or China and enjoyed the benefits of cheap labor. But forget about ever selling anything made by that cheap labor back into the United States, Canada, the EU, Australia, Japan, because those markets were protected with high tariff walls or outright quotas. But successive rounds of trade liberalization, first under GATT and later by its successor, the World Trade Organization, augmented by bilateral, trilateral free trade deals like NAFTA, brick by brick tore those tariff walls down. And as a result, you know, middle class workers couldn't compete with what wages were in China and Mexico. 
and the jobs exited towards those those countries and that's why the middle class is uh you know a hollow shell of what it once was you know three or four decades ago so what you've discussed or described is effectively uh, what we would see as globalization right Exactly, exactly. And the whole idea, I mean, you know, globalization brings benefits. It brings cheap prices and all. But what it essentially is, is a race to the bottom, because where factories are going to be created is where labor's the cheapest. And, you know, for most workers in Canada or the United States, accepting $2.50 an hour, what Mexican auto workers accept is is a, a passport into poverty so whereas having a job used to be a gateway out of poverty today having a job is a gateway into poverty jeff rubin with us the expendables is the book how the middle class got screwed by globalization you know i've had these discussions on air with people whether or not you know they'd make that devil's bargain so you get a flat screen tv for under a grand uh or you can choose to buy an electro home made in kitchener for four uh and, you know they always take that well, I'm first not sure it's, okay you're right i mean there's no question there's no question that if you bring auto production back or, or production of anything whether it's a flat screen TV or an auto or a dishwasher or generic drugs or an N95 respirator mask or a ventilator. If you're producing it in Canada or the United States, it's going to cost a lot more money than producing it in China. And that's, you know, one of the trade-offs. But the irony is that middle class, middle class workers have shopped themselves out of existence by going to Walmart and buying the products that they used to make that are now made by labor forces that get paid a tenth of of what your average Canadian U.S. worker makes. And the recently negotiated U.S.-Canada-Mexico trade agreement, while people like Christia Freeland say it's to protect middle-class jobs, it's the opposite. It's to gut middle-class jobs. It's to gut them in the interests of shareholders. You know, and, and I was, you know, I was a chief economist of an investment bank for 20 years. I get it. Like, how if I'm a Magna shareholder, why pay 20 to $30 an hour when you can pay $2 an hour? And I guess, you know, if I'm a Magna shareholder or a GM shareholder who's just moved their production out of Oshawa, I think Christopher Freeland's doing a great job. But if I'm one of the few remaining Magna workers in Ontario or GM workers in Ontario, you know, I think Christia Freeland's treated me as expendable. Well, and hence the title of the book, The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. Jeff Rubin with us. Uh, so we've been sold a bill of goods by our leadership. Now, curiously, uh, watching last night's Republican National Convention rap when Donald Trump uh, was you know, making noise about Joe Biden's going to export your jobs to China. Uh, He's right. Of- and, 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 and the irony is that of all the people in the world, it's some um, gold-plated billionaire who's probably never spent an hour of his life in a factory championing the rights of American workers like no other president in the post-war period, including Obama and the Bushes and Clinton did. And that's the irony. But when you get right down to it, you know, Bernie Sanders, which was at the other end of the Democratic Party, 
and Donald Trump were both saying the same thing on trade. Like, had the Democratic elites not conspired to keep Bernie Sanders off the ticket, and had he been the president in 2016, we'd be having the exact same trade war that the U.S. is having with China, and he would have renegotiated NAFTA because they were both calling for the same thing. Now, I think neither of them wanted to really acknowledge that the other was calling for the same thing. But what it demonstrates is that populism, a political movement that rejects globalism, can hit from both sides of the plate. It can be either left-wing, Bernie Sanders, or it can be right-wing, Donald Trump. You know, what's interesting is that while Canada has the same conditions, the hollowing out of the middle class, the decline of real wages, the 1% capturing all the gains of economic growth. While those conditions exist in Canada as they exist in the UK and Western Europe and the US, in Canada there has been no populist political expression of that as there has been in the other countries. I mean, time will tell and see how long that lasts. You know, it's interesting you bring up that nexus because uh, it was, I guess, about a year ago at the Monk debate uh, here in town. Uh, Steve Bannon came in and he talked about populism. Uh, it's come. It's going to be here. Populism it's is going to be way. here because the conditions that 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 are conducive to populism, the conditions that that bear populism, are here. Okay, and and I think Bannon made the point that even though he's obviously a right wing populism, populism can hit from both sides of the plate. Well, actually, he said it's just a, uh, yeah. you know, uh, whether or not it's going to be left wing or, or right. Right, I think he's absolutely right. Let me ask you. I mean, uh, is there any way of repatriating uh, these jobs? Because that's what Donald Trump is sort of standing. It's a real on. easy way of repatriating those jobs, and he's done it. Okay, he doesn't get credit for it, but he's done it. When was the last time employment in the U.S. steel industry had risen? When was the last time that we're seeing, you know, new investment in the U.S. auto industry or the aluminum industry? It's real simple. It's not rocket science. You slap a tariff on, and all of a sudden that changes the economics of, of moving plants away. As I said, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, there was the same wage advantage, even bigger wage advantage at the time for moving your production to China or Mexico. But, you know, forget about ever selling anything you make in those factories with cheap labor back into the United States because of tariffs and quotas. Well, you know, I mean, if it works, if it works for American auto workers and steel workers because Trump has imposed tariffs, guess what? The same formula works for Canadian workers. It's just that Justin Trudeau and Christia Friedland, that's not who they, that's not whose interests they represent. Again, with Jeff Rubin, you know, when you start to cite stats like that, uh, North American real wages have peaked in 1975. The, yeah, the percentage of millennials. Time. So if you wonder how come so many people have fallen behind, well, if you haven't had a real wage increase in 50 years, it's, it's real easy to fall behind. Of all these stats that you cite here, and I don't know if you've uh, committed them to memory or not, uh, which is the most disconcerting to you? I mean, they all basically are flip sides of the same coin, whether it hasn't been a real wage increase since 1975, whether there's no jobs being produced in the goods-producing industry, whether in the 1950s one out of every three workers in the private sector in the U.S. were unionized. Today it's one out of 20. They're all 
they're all manifestations of the same thing. It's, you know, for business, it's the imperatives of global competition. For the 99% of us, it's a race to the bottom. Well, you know, some of the, again, the stats, percentage of Canadians who believe their children will be better off than their parents, 24%. The percentage well, of American... Because, because this generation, and not just in Canada, this would hold true in France, the UK, the United States, is really the first generation, particularly the millennials, who will be poorer than their parents. Every generation in the post-war period in OECD countries, and particularly North America, have experienced a better life than their parents. And the millennials, for example, are the most educated cohort in history because their parents thought that education was a pathway to higher earnings. And they, for the most part, make less than their parents. And that's because they live in a different economy than their parents did. They live in an economy where labor has absolutely no bargaining power. They live in an economy where virtually all of the gains of GDP growth accrue to 1% of the population. Yeah, and yet, you know, ironically, we were talking to the Labour Minister in the province, Monty McNaughton, yesterday with his new initiative to try to prop uh, or pump the tires on skilled trades and get the kids in schools in the elementary years thinking about that as an avenue uh, because the labour market there is really going begging. The other one that really concerned me here is the percentage of American millennials who think democracy is essential. Only 30%? I mean, Right. Strip- well, you know, because liberal democracy... For most of the post-war period, at least from 1945 up to about, you know, 1980, meant, you know, meant an an ever-expanding and richer middle class. It it meant not just, you know, the political aspects of democracy. It meant liberal democracy meant a pathway to a better standard of living. And for the vast majority of people in the United States, in Canada, in the UK, in France, in Germany, that's no longer the case. And that's why you have the rise of, for the most part, right-wing populism that, uh, that is challenging liberal democracy. And when, you know, Putin made the remark at the G20 meetings that, by the way, were headquartered in Saudi Arabia, not exactly a poster child of liberal democracy, that most people in liberal democratic countries no longer believe in their system. I mean, he wasn't that far off the mark. And, and you see that in, uh, in the shifting attitudes of people away from that. So, you know, liberal democracy means the right to vote, but it's also meant the right for the freedom of movement of capital and goods. And, and it's the latter that's really the free and free trade. And it's the latter that really has led to the fact that, you know, so many of us haven't seen a real wage increase in half a century. Yeah, uh, the ominous note, too, is that this wealth disparity uh, leading to class warfare and... uh, It always has in the past. This isn't globalization's first rodeo, and it it ended for the very same reasons that, you know, in theory, free trade makes everybody better off so that the winners can subsidize the losers. But in practice, that doesn't happen. It's just the winners, the 1%, gobble it all up. And the losers are just the other ninety nine percent are just expected to take it. Yeah, like a rigged game in a casino. Right, you know, I and wish over we... time, you know, the take it bet grows a little thin. <laughs>
<laughs> Wish we had more time. You got to come back. I mean, uh, this is a okay. fruitful discussion. Nice talking to you, man. We'll yeah, do it again my pleasure. Time, okay. For sure. Take Look care. forward to it. Jeff Rubin again, uh, a world Bye-bye. world leading expert on trade and energy, and also former chief economist and chief strategist at CIBC World Markets. The new book again is The Expendables: How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Friday, August 28, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 